This podcast is a production of the Ephesus School Network. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, You must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Revelation 10, 8-11 you are listening to the Tell Me the Story podcast with your hosts, Blaze Webster and Rowdy Wind. Join us as we engage in a complete read-through of the Holy Scriptures, parsing out the original languages with one question in mind. What is the story? Welcome to the Tell Me the Story podcast. In today's episode, we will be reading Genesis chapter 23, which details Sarah's death and burial, as well as a potential return to the peace of the garden, except it doesn't quite work out. Let's hear the story. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiryat Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. The first detail that we should take note of is where exactly Sarah dies. It says that she died at Kiryat Arba, which is Hebron. This dual pattern of naming is a common occurrence in the Bible, where a place gets two separate names. The general consensus with many of these occurrences is that the first name is an ancient name that would be applicable to the characters in the story, while the second name that's given is a more modern name for the geographical location. Now, it could be that this is totally contained within the literature, where the second name is a reference or point of connection for future stories, or it could be for the sake of the original audience, to have context for the region being referenced. In fact, this latter perspective is a common argument used by those who support the documentary hypothesis, which states that the Old Testament texts were compiled slowly and edited over time with place names redacted and updated, such as this. However, I lean more toward the former explanation, because for this occurrence and several others, the specification seems to have so much literary value. Kiryat Arba means city of the four, which connotes a region separated into four allocations or factions, but Hebron connotes an alliance or unity between people. So the basic comparison of the two names of this region would suggest that it was once divided into four, only to later be united. And that has literary value, because Abraham in this story is essentially creating an alliance with the Hittites later in this chapter, who are the enemies of Israel much later in the Torah, only to end up dwelling alongside them again, being functionally united as a people. Exactly, and even more forceful than that is the simple fact that the number four is a symbol for the totality of the world, as in the four different directions. Again, this is completely lost in translation. The Torah is to be spread to all the peoples of the world, and the scriptural deity is concerned with everyone. It's important to continue reminding the listener of this basic fact, because we tend to focus 
the story of the Old Testament on the Jewish people alone. This is an error. The Jews are but one group picked out for example, but not significant outside of those parameters. Sarah dying and being buried in this Gentile land is extremely significant. Nobody owns anything, and no group is standing out. God is the sole owner and is the supreme God of all. Continuing on in the text, And Abraham rose from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place, that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my lord, you are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold you from his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. And he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of the field for the full price. Let him give it to me in your presence as a property for a burying place. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites of all who went in the gate of his city. No, my lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. There is a powerful literary decision being made here. Please recall that the authors of this story are not interested in reconstructing history. They are telling a story. And with a story comes the need to make creative choices that deliver specific messages and ideas. If you wrote a story and didn't think about any of the cohesive creative decisions necessary for a good story and did everything willy-nilly just for the sake of making something, then you'd get a low Rotten Tomato score. If the Bible's literary feats were graded the same way as films, then it would have a very good Rotten Tomato score. But back to my point. Here, Abraham could be purchasing a burial plot from any nation, but he is interacting with the Hittites specifically. Why is this important? Those who are well-versed in biblical literature would know that the Hittites are an imposing nation of people descended from Canaan, the cursed grandchild of Noah, and more specifically from Canaan's son, Chet. The Hittites, or literally the sons of Chet, are one of the people that the Israelites are supposed to devote to destruction due to their abominable practices, uh, which are detailed in Deuteronomy 20. And in Deuteronomy 7, they are detailed to be one of the seven nations more numerous and mightier than Israel. It is also mentioned in Deuteronomy 7 the specific treatment that God is commanding Israel to have toward this nation. It's challenging for us to understand out of context, but let me read it to you anyway so you can get the gravity of what's happening here in Genesis 23 by comparison. So Deuteronomy 7 says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you, and when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them. 
You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their asherim and burn their carved images with fire. On top of just the comparison between Deuteronomy 7 and Genesis 23, in the original Hebrew text, just the very words, son of Chet, are domineering in this chapter. It's a fortunate coincidence that in English, the word Chet sounds like hate, which is, of course, a strong negative word in and of itself in English, but Chet in Hebrew actually comes from the verb Chatat, which means to be shattered, broken, or dismayed. It's the same word in Genesis 9 when God tells the humans that their brokenness, sometimes translated as terror, will be upon all the living things of the earth. So on top of their abominable cultural practices, these Hittite people are a mighty nation to be feared. To the Israelite heritage and nation, they are an enemy above all enemies. So after taking all of that into consideration, isn't it bizarre how kind Ephron the Hittite is to Abraham? In addition to Ephron's kindness, Abraham is bowing before these Hittite people. And that may not sound that impressive in English, but the word being used in Hebrew is very intense. The word comes from the root shachach, which normally describes a person's bowing down before a deity or something to that effect. When it is a human to another human, it is to show complete respect, reverence, and honor the way one would do before a king. Later in the literature of the Torah, the Hittite people are seen as enemies of the Israelites, enemies of God more specifically, but here in the story of Genesis 23 is this peace and fellowship happening between Abraham and Ephron. I mean, it's brilliant. It just goes to show that these varied stories were written with specific intentions for the specific story. A group of people can be the dastardly enemies in one story and the comfort of our protagonist in another. It is all subject to the authors and by extension, God. We don't get to pass judgment on anyone. We have to be quiet. We have to stifle our egos and listen to the story we are being told and treat our neighbor exclusively with the kindness and mercy that the story is teaching us to use. That is all. And again, I have to emphasize the fact that this behavior we are being taught to have is the behavior that the icon of the quote-unquote enemy has in this story. It's putting a lot of pressure on us. We can't miss it. Also, the name Ephron is really interesting because it comes from the same root as Afar, which is the dust in Hebrew. This is the word that is used when humans and the land animals are being created out of the dust of the earth. And it is also used to describe death with the dust returning to dust. Ephron bearing this name is certainly no coincidence, especially since he is selling Abraham a plot of land for burial into the ground so uh, Sarah can return to the dust she came from. It's also evocative of Ephron's connection to the ground himself, as all humans have this same connection. In, in the ancient Near East, distinctions between people had little to do with race or language or anything cultural and had more to do with geographical proximity. Ephron the Hittite is nothing more than a dusty man like the rest of humanity, and Abraham gladly settles in his land and opts to bury his family there. To bury one's family in a seemingly foreign location would seem like an odd move, but the point is, is that there is no such thing as a foreign location. The beauty of the scriptural model is that one can be anywhere the wind blows, because where the wind blows, there is the scriptural God. Since Abraham exhibits true biblical teaching and living by coexisting with his perceived enemies without anything tying him down to a, spe to a specific location, 
He is a nomadic shepherd in the Syro-Arabian wilderness, and it's a far cry from his origins as a city-dwelling Aramean, but we'll see soon enough how that pops up a little bit. But speaking of that, too, it's also interesting that the Hittites refer to Abraham as God's exalted one. This is not the word ram that is used uh, for Abram's name, but it's the word nasi, which uh, is also sometimes translated to prince. The most straightforward translation seems to, to be that it refers to someone who stands out and is exalted in some way. This is rather odd in that Abraham is nothing more than a shepherd at this point. There's nothing exalted about him externally. But the Hittites are submitting to God's exalted place for Abraham as a prophet and as a father of a multitude of nations. In other words, the Hittites and Abraham alike are all under the aegis of the scriptural God. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land. And he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, But if you will, hear me. I give the price of the field. Accept it from me, that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, My lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth four hundred shekels of silver, what is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, four hundred shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. I think the authors are really just continuing to push the point here. Ephron the Hittite is a wonderful icon of mercy. He insists that Abraham takes the land as a gift, but Abraham is stubborn and insists on paying for it. I'm being intentional when I say he is being stubborn. Abraham is being blessed by the situation, but by paying money, he turns the situation into a transaction. That sounds like a good thing to our capitalist ears, but Abraham can't even do so fairly. He beguiles his way into the knowledge of the price of the field when Ephron is rhetorically asking, what is 400 shekels of silver between you and me? Right? He isn't saying it costs 400 shekels of silver, pay up. He's saying, what is this sum of money between you and me? It's no matter. He's implying that payment is unnecessary, and silly Abraham hears that and brings up that amount of money to pay for the land. It's a bit silly, especially in light of the seemingly universal state of peace that was just established in the previous chapter. Why are we still concerned with capital? I thought that people were able to dwell without the concern for such things. Now, I am not suggesting that Abraham is committing some egregious sin, but just that his insistence on monetary transaction is indicative of the city dweller's mindset, the very mindset that the Bible is trying to weed out. And this overarching pattern is really just a comical biblical rhythm that we hear over and over again through the various Meshalim in the Old Testament. Peace and justice are established, the people are vindicated, and everything is shalom, until it isn't. The flood was meant to provide a new beginning through the one righteous family of Noah, but it turns out they aren't that righteous after all. Lot and his daughters are saved from the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah that was wrought due to the destructive cultural practices of those cities, but the two daughters who were saved actually end up preserving that very behavior. Things are good until the people make them not good. So the field of Ephron and Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area, was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites. 
before all who went in at the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. I want to point out the garden-like imagery present in the passage we just read. Most Christians would agree that whenever garden imagery pops up, uh, that it is meant to symbolize the ideal, that the garden is the ideal situation. It is the perfect order that God intended before human corruption. So, whenever we have that pattern that I mentioned a moment ago, where there is vindication and shalom, there is often imagery alluding to the garden, which we have in verse 17, where it says, The field of Ephron in Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field. So it certainly could be more explicit by calling it a garden, but I think the intent is clear. This is a field with vegetation and trees, just like the Garden of Eden. So the primary calamity that I touched on is being totally summarized in this verse and the following one. I'll read it again, verses 17 and 18 together. Keeping all of this in mind, let's hear it. So the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it and all the trees that were in the field, throughout its whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of his city. Right. Ephron insists on giving the cave to Abraham as a gift, but Abraham continuously fights this so he can purchase it as a possession. The word for possession used here is mikne, which comes from kana, the word that goes all the way back to Genesis 3, when Cain is born to Eve and she claims possession over him. Obviously, this is negative, according to scripture. This is really interesting because we see Abraham slipping once again. It's really astounding to me how complicated Abraham is as a character. He's so difficult to pin down, and I can't help but feel that that is the intention of the author. At no point can the hearers use the scriptural data in order to turn Abraham into a culture hero. If you are faithful to the text, you simply cannot do that. The scripture very cleverly doesn't allow you to do that with anyone else either. Isaac is the most righteous out of all of them, but his story is so short that there's really nothing heroic to latch onto, as one would expect from a cultural hero. As we will see, Isaac does nothing but live peacefully with the outsiders, and when discord does present itself, Isaac simply packs up and leaves. He's never tied down anywhere. And after him, we have Jacob, who eventually becomes the patriarch of Israel, as it is from his name change that we eventually get the name Israel. But Jacob is the usurper, and he's rather incompetent at times, and it's quite embarrassing as a cultural figure. And then after him, we have Joseph. But the majority of Joseph's story takes place in Egypt and is immersed in Egyptian culture. So that's rather odd for a cultural figure as well. There's nothing to latch on to and say, go Israel from Joseph's story, because if anything, the other Israelites were the ones who got Joseph into this mess. And finally, when you transition into the book of Exodus with Moses, who the text is obviously setting up as the culture hero for Israel, he turns out to be a dud as well and, and makes a mistake in the wilderness so calamitous 
that it prevents him from entering the promised land. So you're left with nothing but the words of the divine command and the God it presents to you. It's brilliant, but just how Abraham fought against what was given to him by Ephron, we fight against this point that the Bible is giving us. We want someone to cheer for. We want Abraham's story to be more digestible. We want the Bible to be more approachable and easy to understand on a whim. But this is simply an incorrect way of approaching it. The Bible will never and can never submit to us. We must submit to the words of Scripture, no matter how difficult it is to do so. Amen. See you all next week. Peace be with you.